Church, I want to begin this message um, by asking you to to ponder a couple of questions seriously with me this morning. And maybe you think you know the answers to these, and if you do, that's great. Now, here's the first question. What is our mission on earth? What's the church's mission on earth? And my second question is this. What motivates us to fulfill that mission? I pray that you think about that as I'm preaching this morning. I pray that this is on your heart continually. We need to be considering what our mission as Christians in the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, what our mission on earth is and what motivates us to continue doing it. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us without an answer. He gives us an answer in his word. He gives us an answer to these two questions in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. And by the time I finish this message today, I pray that you will have memorized verses 9 and 10. You will hear them enough to have an indelible mark on your soul. Let me read the text to you, beginning in verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day A visitation on the day of the Lord when Christ returns. If you'll notice there in verse 9, Peter, I think, reveals something to us that is spectacular. And it's essential to answering these questions. It's essential to our mission. Look at verse 9a again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, now Peter is telling us that Christ's church is unique. It's made up of living stones that are built on the cornerstone, on Jesus Christ. The living, the true and abiding living stone. We are like living stones in his temple. And, And this body, this temple that God has created, built on Christ, has been given a unique privilege on the earth. It says there that we are called by God, Almighty, the Sovereign One, the Creator and Sustainer of all things. He called us. He commissioned us. That's what it says also. We're commissioned by God. And it says that we are consecrated by God, set apart for a special purpose. It also says that we are owned by God. We're His possession. We are not our own. And all that implies to me as I read that text, that the church is unique and has a unique place 
on this earth. It implies here when we read this, as he uses an illustration of the building of a temple to these stones that are put together earlier in this chapter, it implies that we are placed together in this temple, this household of faith. We're placed together for a divine purpose. So you're a part of the church by God's design. There's a purpose in which he has planned from eternity past that he's bringing about in the present through you. Verses 9 to 10 basically reveal to us that divine purpose. And also they reveal to us our mission on earth. Peter tells us that the church is, is linked together like living stones built on Christ for two reasons. Number one, for a Christ-exalting mission. With that mission, he also gives us number two, a mercy-driven motivation that moves us into our actions that we take in this world to make much of Christ. Now, in verse 9a, Peter reveals to us that the reason God saved you and I and placed us in his church, in Christ's body, the household of faith. And he reveals to us here, number one, that our Christ-exalting mission is what we are here to accomplish. Look at verse 9. Peter reveals the purpose of God's people, the church here on earth. He says, look, you, you have been called by God, which means you are now a chosen race, picked out, selected by God. You are a commissioned people. You're commissioned by God. You're now a royal priesthood. So many times we read that passage and we think that we're all individual royal priests. That's not what it says. You are a body of priests. You are a priesthood of believers. We are united together in our priestly service to God on the earth, in the church. This is not a verse about individualistic Christianity. It's about our unity in the church and God's purpose for us on earth. He goes on to say we are consecrated by God to be a holy nation, set apart, sacred unto God. And what he's telling us here is that we are all linked together for an obviously specific purpose. And the purpose is there in 9b. Here is our divine purpose on earth. This is the answer to my question. Here is your purpose for existing on the earth at this time. It is that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And just think about how he did it. This is your divine purpose, and it should be your divine passion. You should want to make much of Christ and exalt Him because of what God has done through Him. He brought you out of darkness into His marvelous lights. Well, how does He do that? How did He do that? Well, Colossians helps us understand that a little bit more. Go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Here we see how God called us out of darkness and in to his light. Verse 13. Speaking of God the Father. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, relocated us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And, and here's how he did it. That son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. 
There was a divine transaction that went on there to deliver us out of darkness. And that in itself should be enough to motivate us to proclaim the excellencies of him, our savior. But go back to first Peter, first Peter two, nine. Peter is saying to all these stones in this spiritual house that is that is built on Christ redeeming work that Paul wrote about in Colossians. He's saying, look, I want you to understand something. And church, I want you to understand this. Okay, you have been saved and you have been placed together here in the body of Christ in our church for one reason, according to God. And that reason is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus's work. That is your divine mission on earth. Whether it is done in your workplace, whether it is done in your home, this is your purpose for being here at this time. God could have easily taken you home when he converted you, but he left you. He left you to do this, to proclaim you're the spokesman for God. You're the ambassador of Christ You're telling the world about this marvelous God that has saved you, that has rescued you, that has called you by his sovereign grace. This is your divine privilege. And this is your divine mission. It's a Christ exalting mission. Now, what I find really great and interesting here is is the word proclaim in that verse. There in 2.9, he says that you may proclaim and proclaim is very unique. I didn't know this until I studied this out, but it's, it's, it's unique because it's the only place in the New Testament that this word is used. It is a very specific word. It is a very purposeful word. And here's what it means. This word means to publish or to advertise and, and not in the average way. It's not like you take an ad out in the paper that talks about Jesus. It's more like you stand on the corner and you proclaim Jesus with all your strength. It means to advertise by lifting up the voice loudly and joyfully. It is something that you are called to do from the heart. And it should not be held back. That's what your divine purpose in life is. You are to be so ready and eager to tell people about Jesus that it springs out of you with joy and with passion. I know we struggle at times to make that happen. But God's going to give us later in this text a divine motivation. He's going to give us a mercy-driven motivation to help us do this more consistently as his people here on earth. When Peter, when Peter says this, uses this word proclaim, he's saying, look, we're in this church. We're in Christ's church. The people of God are placed together to, to do this, to make the excellencies of God's mercy widely Known throughout the world. Loudly and joyfully known throughout the world. We are to proclaim the excellency of him who called us out of darkness and into his light. Joyfully, broadly, passionately. That's the reason for the church. That's the reason we're here gathered this morning. And I I really hope that's why you're here this morning. I hope you are here this morning to make much of Jesus. To loudly and joyfully proclaim his great mercy toward you and toward me. 
That's, that's the reason we gather. That's the reason God ordained the church. We gather corporately every week for this purpose. We, we gather here and we do what we just did. We, we gather and we sing, right? What do we sing? We sing about Christ. That's what I love about our church. The songs were so Christ-centered today. Well, they're that way every Sunday. Glory to God. Because He is our hope. He is our deliverer. He is our Savior. He is our friend. We come here, we gather together on a Sunday, on a Wednesday, to, to sing about Christ's worth. To learn about Christ's work in the equipping hour and in the preaching of this word. And in the sharing of Christ's love in our fellowship. We do all that for a reason. It's God's reason. But it benefits us. And it benefits the world around us. Because through this, we learn to proclaim the excellencies of Him loudly and joyfully in the world. We, we gather here corporately to do all these things. And then we are doing this for a reason. To scatter and personally proclaim these things. Proclaim the excellencies of Christ in our workplace, in our families, in the world. And do so with joy. And not with just joy, but with confidence. That's why God established the church. You come here to be established in the truth about Jesus so you can accurately and confidently proclaim Jesus to the world with joy. That's your divine mission in life. And this is why our corporate gatherings really are so important too. Here, God ordained this gathering for the purpose of equipping you to do the work of the ministry. God ordained your, your personal mission on earth to be fueled by the church's corporate mission to faithfully teach God's people how to proclaim the excellencies of Christ worshipfully and confidently. We try to do that here. That is a passion of our hearts. That's the reason we want you here on Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights are not an option if you're a covenant member, by the way. It's your commitment to Christ. You said you'd be here. You said you'd be here on Sunday morning for the equipping hour because you want to make much of Jesus through his established means of grace, the church. Let me show you how this helps us. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me to Colossians again. Colossians 1. Here we can see that I think the point I'm trying to make is clear. The importance of why we gather and how it helps us to scatter while we gather corporately and how it equips us to scatter into the world personally and joyfully and confidently. In Colossians 1.15, you can see that, that our personal mission is fueled by the truth that we learn here that unites us in Christ corporately. So the more you come here and, and learn of Christ corporately, it's going to fuel your personal ministry, your personal mission in the world. And the truth that unites us in Christ is revealed here in 115. Now, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he, he and no other, 
That's what the implication is. He is before all things, and in him all things are sustained, or they hold together. That's who Jesus is. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. By the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Listen. That truth. Is something we rejoicing in. Rejoice. Can't speak. Sorry. That we rejoice in when we gather here on Sundays. Because this truth here that we read in Colossians is the truth about what God does to unite us to himself and to each other in the church. Because of this sacrifice that he provided for us. And it's, it's being united together in this truth and knowing that how God did this was so personal and so powerful in Christ that will cause you to want to go into the world and proclaim Christ's worthiness and do so with confidence. When you do it in evangelism, when you do it in apologetics, when you do it in means of encouragement to other Christians. The things that you learn here corporately will fuel your ability to go globally, go into the world and proclaim his worthiness with confidence. See, when we grow in this understanding, when we grow in our understanding of how God has united us by sending God the Son to rescue us Personally, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him and through his blood he reconciled us at the cross. When we grow in that understanding corporately, we will go and proclaim Christ confidently to the lost and dying world around us. So God has a Christ-exalting mission for us and it begins in the church. It begins as you come together Corporately and worship him and grow in the knowledge and wisdom of Christ. Now go with me to Romans 5. I want to show you another example of this. Here we see that our personal mission in the world is also fueled by the work of the church. It's, it's fueled by the truth that we learn here that ignites our praise for Jesus' work corporately. Your, your mission in the world will fall short, will run out of steam if you separate yourself from the body of Christ. That's why church discipline works for the true believer. It is agony to be apart from the body. But for the believer, he wants to be united to the body. He's gathering here joyfully, eagerly, so he can learn these things. And that that learning and that process of worshiping with the body of Christ ignites our hearts and praise for Jesus comes forth. And that praise moves us into the world with confidence and with joy. Look at Romans 5, 6. If your heart doesn't get full of joy after reading this passage, I have nothing to offer you. If this passage alone doesn't move you to want to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, nothing will. Speaking of us, verse 6. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. That's all of us. There are none righteous, no, not one. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in our place, in our stead, receiving the penalty that we were due since therefore we have now been declared righteous, justified by his blood, his sacrifice, much more shall we be saved or completed or matured by him, saved again from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More, more than that, he says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. That truth should change your passions. You should be driven to joyful praise and proclamation of Jesus when you meditate on how you have been reconciled by God the Son's sacrifice. I want you to know something about this passage and about the truth about Christ's work being the thing that moves us to proclaim his excellencies. This, this should be the heart cry of all of God's people on earth. Because this is still the heart's cry of all those in heaven. Look with me at Revelation 5. Even in glory, this will be what we proclaim. We'll proclaim the excellencies of him who called us through his mercy, through Christ taking our place. Verse 9 says, in heaven... They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why was he worthy? Because or for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of a myriad of angels. Right? It says, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I, I saw the response. That's what he's going to say. I, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped Jesus. This is the song of heaven that they are proclaiming and that we will proclaim for eternity. 
This truth calls for us to joyfully proclaim Jesus and his love to a lost world. When we don't do that, we say it's because we're afraid. Well, do you think Jesus enjoyed going to the cross? Oh, he, he wasn't afraid in the same sense that we are, but he, he went to the cross despising the shame. He went there joyfully with his face set for this purpose to redeem us. The reason we don't proclaim this, the reason we're afraid to do this is because we're selfish. And the selfless one came to give us hope that we can be able to testify to this to the world around us. And that's why we are here today. And as we grow in our understanding about what Christ did, his perfect life, his sacrificial death that now reconciles us to God eternally. That will be what fuels us to proclaim the glorious work of Christ joyfully to the world. I was reminded of this this week on the 4th of July. We had family over and in the the midst of the the talk, superficial, whatever, passing the time of night. But then my nephew asked me a question. He asked me a question about Christ's atonement. He asked me about Jesus and what he did at the cross. And as I explained the atonement, as I explained the imputation that took place at the cross, this young man, he literally began to shiver in awe of what he was hearing. That was a joy. I want that joy. That is my Christ-exalting mission on earth, reason for being here. And I, I want to enjoy it. And that's what I want for you this morning. That's why I'm taking you here. See, the more we know about the one who unites us, that makes us his church, puts us together in this body, the more we will want to praise him by proclaiming his work and his worth to the world around us. And understand something. I'm not just simply talking about our mission being evangelism for evangelism's sake. I'm talking about our mission being worship for Christ's sake. That's what evangelism should be. That is what it was intended to be. It is the declaration of the Savior with joy and with confidence that we share with those who are yet to be saved by God's grace and his mercy. It should be an act of worship, adoration, when we go into evangelism. Now, I don't presume that you don't desire this, that that you don't want to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. I'm sure if I asked you all, this would be the, the desire of your heart. But I'm also very aware that we all struggle to do this at times. So I want to give you some hope from God's word that I think will help motivate us in this work, in this mission. Look again back with me to First uh, Peter 2. 9 and 10, and I'm going to read them together again because I, I want these verses etched on your hearts. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim 
the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is our mercy driven motivation. This is what is meant to move us into action. This is what was going to move these persecuted saints there that Peter was writing to. It's going to move them out of the fear of persecution into action. This, this mercy-driven motivation should be what equips us with joy to fulfill our mission. I want you to ponder this and, and think about this seriously. Just the words that are used in this passage when it says, speaking of God, He called us. He called us. Understand something about God's calling, kaleo. It's, it's, it's an irresistible call. It is one that is done in love. And, and it is for a divine purpose. You're not just saved to sit. You're not just saved to attend the church. You're, you're not just saved to be a Christian by name only. You are saved for a purpose. You were called. You were chosen before the foundation of the earth. Your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before this world was created. The one who would be slain from the foundation of the earth. He wrote your name. It's engraven on his hand. And he did that. He called you into this. Into your mission. Notice what it says. By his mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You're called out of darkness, right? Called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. (laughs) He didn't give us what we deserved. That's what that means. He didn't reject us. He didn't bring his wrath down upon us. He should have. Justly. He didn't do that. He could have. He should have. Because before he called us out of darkness, this domain of darkness, this enslavement to sin and Satan, before he did that, we were wretches in this world. We were idolaters. We loved our sins and we hated God's righteousness. And we desired nothing but our own pleasures. And we deserved his wrath as a result. But it says here and in Ephesians 2, But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his Son to rescue us, to call us out of the domain of darkness and bring us into the light of his grace. He mercied us. He didn't give us what we deserved. He sent his Son instead We didn't deserve the Son of God coming to take our place personally, to die for us on a cross because of our wretchedness. But he did this and didn't pour it out on us because he poured it out on his Son in our place. God could not overlook our sins. He didn't just not give us what we deserved. He gave Jesus what we deserved on the cross. So that he could call us out of darkness and into his light. Be amazed by this. 
Be amazed by your calling. Especially when you understand the New Testament understanding of calling, even the Old Testament understanding of calling. Be amazed because it says here that God, the Almighty, mercifully and sovereignly called us out of something that entrapped us, that we couldn't get out of on our own, the domain of darkness. It had enslaved us and blinded our eyes to His glory and His grace. To understand something about this calling, it is powerful. You're a testimony to it. You know what you were like before he called you. You know what you loved and what you hated. Now you love and hate the opposite. Because he called you. He mercifully called you. And you need to understand that this merciful calling that he's talking about here in verse 9 in particular. This was a divine summons. This is not merely an invitation. Listen, when the sovereign God of the universe summons you come out of darkness, out of death, out of depravity. You come when the sovereign one says, your mind arise, come forth. This calling he's talking about here is effectual. It is effective calling, effectual in its work. Like I said, it's not merely a divine invitation. It's a divine summons to salvation. It's a spiritual awakening of the soul. You are dead. You are in the depths of your sin. And God gave you life. The life he crushed out of his son. This is the miracle of regeneration that Peter's talking about. When he says he called you out of darkness. You're going to proclaim something as a result of that? Are you motivated to say something good about Jesus now? I hope so. Aren't you thankful for the way he called you? Aren't you thankful for the way he mercied you? God Almighty, his merciful hand pulled you out of the muck and the mire of your own sin. He picked you up and he cleansed you by the blood of his own son. So that you could be here on the earth proclaiming how excellent he is. And one day join him in glory around the throne singing, worthy are you. O Lord, to receive honor and glory and praise forever. Let that mercy motivate you to fulfill your mission. Do it by pondering afresh what he's done for you this week. And just think about how God mercifully and personally chose to rescue you out of darkness and bring you into the light. He sent his son. God the Son took on human flesh, paid our sin debt at the cross personally to give us eternal life with Him. Does that change the way you live life now? It's supposed to. Live in such a way that people see Christ. You decrease so He would increase. This is the, if you want to understand sanctification, if you want to understand why, how to get rid of the sins that are trapping you, do this. Make much of Jesus. Revel in Christ. Look to Him. He will sanctify your sins. He will put them apart. And He'll make you a part of His mission. If you want to walk in holiness, focus on Jesus. That's really what even Peter says here later in this passage. Let that motivate you this morning. Ponder God's mercy 
to you. Let that be the drive behind your mission when you're called to go out and face opposition. Look at verse nine, or verse 10 again. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Man, if that is not your motivation to pursue this mission and holy living, nothing else will do it. You haven't received what you deserve. Jesus did in your place. Now go tell people about how great he is. You won't do that living in sin. You'll shuck the sin and you'll run to Christ. Repentance will be the act of worship in your heart. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is what he's saying. Look, you've been mercied. Let it change you. This is your motivation for sanctification as well. Beloved, I urge you based on this. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, pilgrims, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. Why? Because they blind us. They distance us from the glorious work of Christ where we don't enjoy it. We, we look to our sins for pleasure, not resting in Christ our pleasure. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and magnify God on the day that Jesus returns. When, when Jesus comes, the way you fulfill your mission and the way you are motivated to do it will be testified to when he returns. The world will say those people were mercied by God. Those people were different. Those people were changed. Glory to God. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, either willfully or judicially, that Jesus Christ is Lord. But we want to be the ones who do it willfully and joyfully now in the world by living differently, driven by mercy to be his ambassadors here on earth. Just think about this. You, you were once objects of his righteous wrath. But now by his mercy and Christ's work, you're now objects of of his divine love, and you are called into his service. Here's what you are. You are mercied missionaries. Every one of you. You are mercied missionaries. As I said, that's why you're still here on the earth and not in glory. You were left here on purpose, specifically God's purpose. Now, I know that fulfilling our purpose won't always be easy here on the earth because we have to struggle with sin and with Satan, both of which try to distort or distract us from our work. And I also know that it's not easy to pursue this. It's not easy to fulfill our purpose because even when we try very diligently, we never do it with the kind of strength and accuracy that we would like to do. We also know that people will reject our message and at times we'll feel like failures because when you tell them about Jesus and you're enjoying and glorifying his name, no matter how faithful you are in that, at times their hearts may not be changed. That can be discouraging. But thanks be to God, we don't have to change their hearts. That's God's merciful work, not ours. We're just called to proclaim. He calls us simply to be faithful, to joyfully proclaim the work of Christ. We're not called to make the word take root. We're not called to make the word sprout. We're not called to make the word grow. We're just called to be faithful broadcasters 
scattering the seed for the glory of his name as an act of worship and joy and adoration from our hearts. Keep that in mind when you get discouraged, when you can't do this as you wish. And keep that in mind because sometimes people measure the success in ministry and in their mission based on outward results. We don't do that. Our success in our mission is not based on the number of people that profess to believe in Jesus after hearing us. Our success in our mission is based on how faithful we are proclaiming Christ's excellencies. That is what the basis of our success is. The Apostle Paul, like Peter, was a man who was motivated by God's mercy to do just that. Let me take you one more place before I conclude. Go with me to Acts 18. Paul was motivated by God's mercy to speak the truth even when no one was listening. Even when it seemed like his ministry was a failure. Even when he felt discouraged. He did that because God's mercy had compelled him to keep on proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. Even in the face of opposition, persecution. Look with me at Acts 18 verse 1. So you can see how he did this and see how it worked in action here. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. That's not a place you want to go. Okay, It's beyond the bad side of town. It is the bad town. And he found a, a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy and his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus, the Messiah was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, verses nine and ten tell me something about what was probably going on in the Apostle Paul's heart. He was probably saying, I think I'm through. This deal at Corinth, this ministry that I have, I I think that I'm tired of this opposition. I I know I've went to the Gentiles now, but, you know, I'm going to run into more of these Jews in the future. So, God, I'm not sure that I really need to be doing that in this town. He's struggling with that. So God gives him these words of encouragement here. People were resisting Paul's ministry. They were resisting his faithfulness. He's proclaiming Jesus better than anyone, I'm sure, at the time. He was probably ready to give up at some point. But it tells us here that God stepped in in his mercy and motivated Paul to pursue his ministry, his mission. 
That's what it says in verses 9 and 10. He says, go on speaking. Speaking about what? About the excellencies of Christ to a people in a pagan city, a city full of perversion and paganism. And understand this. It was God's mercy that moved him to go there because God was going to mercy people there in that city. Amidst that paganistic, perverse city, Jesus Christ birthed a church. He called out a people because Paul was moved by God's mercy. He says, I have many people in this city. Many he will mercifully call, mercifully call out of darkness. And we know that through this ministry, many came to know Christ, even in the worst of conditions. And I want you to find that as a source of encouragement. Okay, we live in a city like Corinth. We live in a world like Corinth today. Perversion and paganism is everywhere. And sometimes we can get discouraged in our mission. But understand something. God wants us to be encouraged in his mercy. To go on speaking. And I pray that you let God's mercy do that. That it motivates you to go on speaking. Even in the face of opposition. Speak about the excellencies of Christ. And do it with joy and with confidence. Do it faithfully. Because God has many people yet to be saved in our city. In our world. And he's going to do that through the ministry of his church, his mercied missionaries. Church, understand something. And you know this, and I'm sure it's crossed your mind. Sometimes we think of it as something that someone else would do, but we don't always put ourselves in this position. We talk about Ryan Powell in France as a missionary. We think about him going into that field of harvest to, to work for the glory of God. We pray and hold him up in esteem that he would be able to do so with joy and confidence. But I want you to understand something. You are all missionaries. If you're a Christian, you've been called on a mission. Your mission field is not in France necessarily. It could be. Your mission field is right outside these doors when you leave here today. Your family, your friends, your co-workers. That's where you're called to go as mercied missionaries. So I want you to go on. Go and keep going. Go on proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, our Savior. Because that is your divine mission. And always let God's mercy be your motivation. Don't ever do it legalistically. Look to Jesus. Focus on him and the mercy you've received by God through his work. Let that move you into action. I pray that that will happen this morning, even as we leave this building. Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I, I am not sufficient to cause that to take root, sprout, or grow. But God, I don't want to stand before you one day ashamed for not having spoken faithfully about how glorious you are, about your great mercy and your great love for sinners like us. Lord, we will all be forgotten one day Everyone in this room will just be a memory. We pray, God, that people would forget us, but they would never forget our testimony about Jesus. That's why we are here. We should leave that mark on this world when we leave. 
I don't care about a legacy for myself. I don't care about my heritage. I care about Christ's name being exalted. And I pray, God, that that is what would happen through your mercy missionaries here at Sovereign Grace. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.